I don't know if this has happened to you before. Um, last two times I've been asked or invited to, to speak, first at a wedding and then here now. I've had like uh, an amazing amount of people kind of come up and do this like little rubbing on my back. Um, the Christian community is awesome, isn't it? A little bit uncomfortable, but... Um, the, the funny thing is, is in, in that moment, in that rubbing on, on kind of that padding, that encouragement, there's been kind of this consistent uh, phrase that's been said. Um, you got this, man. You got this, man. I feel like if I've learned anything from studying the crucifixion, this weekend, uh, with all due respect to those that have encouraged me that way, I really hope not. Um, in fact, I really know not. And so as we dive deep into, um, we're going to be in Matthew um, tonight, I just pray that that would be on the tip of our tongues in every place. Nevertheless, when you get 20 minutes to preach on Good Friday, it's hard not to feel a little bit like you're being set up to experience disappointment. I think of it this way. If you've ever tried to hit a pinata blindfolded, you know the feeling. You just pray, 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 that before your turn is done, you've actually hit the thing. In any case, in this story, there's more than enough to go around. And so uh, let's dive into it right away. We're looking, we're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew chapter 27. I'll start in verse 26 and following, and you can go there with your, uh, in your own Bibles and catch up. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And they put a reed in his hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put on his own clothes, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink. Wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Kings aren't struck like piñatas. Matthew's bruising point is just that. The true King of the Jews is not being properly seen. In chapter 2, Magi from the east come seeking the King of the Jews. And when they see Jesus... Then only a child, they fall down and worship him. Now in chapter 27, the charge against Jesus is the same. He's found guilty of being the king of the Jews. Except those that come to worship him, they come bringing gifts of mockery, abuse, hostility. 
But amidst all the cringing noise of violence, Jesus remains characteristically or uncharacteristically silent. Between all the details, Matthew doesn't describe a single note of resistance. There's no plea, no attempted escape, no retaliation. Instead, Matthew leaves us reeling like Pilate, asking, Jesus, do you not see the things they do to you? Do you not hear the things they say against you? And then we look again. Jesus, silent, accepts the robe, the royal robe. Jesus, silent, receives the crown of suffering. Jesus, silent, lets the battalion kneel. Jesus, silent, accepts the mocking praise. Jesus, silent, is raised up on the cross. Jesus, silent, accepts his guilty charge. This is Jesus, the king, Matthew is screaming. It's a, it's a royal procession. It's, it's rated R and it's ill-intended, but Matthew's irony is clearly written above his cross. The Jesus, this Jesus who they are crucifying, is the king. John's gospel says the title was written in Hebrew, Latin, and even Greek, helping make this point crystal clear. He's not just the true king of Israel, but of all cultures. All four gospels are explicit in their portrayal of Jesus' death as a royal event. All four gospels are also explicit in their invitation. Good Friday isn't meant, friends, to be a passive event. Rather, you're compelled, somewhat violently, like Simon of Cyrene, to get involved. And that's Matthew's first question to us all. How well do you recognize Jesus, your King? Does your life carry the shame of his death? Or is it a mockery of his passion? The crucifixion in Matthew is a coronation of this world's rightful king. And you're invited to show your allegiance. Let's keep looking. Verse 38 and following. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. One of the, one of the things I love about Matthew's uh, Good Friday story is who's included at the cross. Matthew's version includes Jews, Romans, politicians, devoted followers, soldiers, family, the marginalized, traitors, criminals, women, random strangers, and crowds of nameless humans. In other words, Matthew goes out of his way to include every character in order not to excuse any character from dealing with the death of Jesus. In this particular scene, two criminals, local Jews, religious leaders, and the well-educated are all taking issue with Jesus on the cross. Even if you're not familiar with the characters in Matthew's story, though, most of you will be familiar with the shameful symbol of the cross. In fact, in our post-Christian uh, in our post-Christian climate, the cross is hardly an attractive image. 
Unless, of course, it accidentally features on a piece of high fashion or a shimmering necklace of a pop star. That is, we find it acceptable, the cross, as long as it symbolizes something other than the death row sentence that it actually was. The sentiment is not so different in this scene in Matthew. The criminals beside Jesus don't receive a tongue lashing, only the one who called himself the Son of God, the King of Israel. And they sort of have a point. What kind of king gets crucified? You can't be named the greatest of all time without winning a couple championships. To the crowds, the cross proves Jesus is powerless. But for Matthew, Jesus is exactly where he needs to be. In the middle of his story, chapter 16, verse 21 reads, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, now, Peter's not dull. It's just actually moments earlier that he's correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, he blesses Peter for his understanding. So, so at the very least, these titles are deserving of some brief observation. First, when Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, he's giving him the name of Israel's long-awaited deliverer. The Jews are an oppressed and subjugated people. They're longing for political independence and nationalistic glory. The Messiah represented the hope that one day God would send his king to make Israel great again. The second title, Son of the Living God, conveys a unique quality about Jesus' identity with Israel's God. Twice, in Matthew 3 and 17, a voice from heaven, God's own voice, calls Jesus his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. In Matthew 14, Jesus is worshipped as the Son of God after he seemingly acts with divine power to walk upon and calm a raging sea. And at his trial, Matthew 26, um, in Matthew 26, the blasphemy of Jesus is his, is his claim that as the Son of God, he shall share God's power and throne. That is to say that as the Son of the living God, Peter is declaring Jesus uniquely connected with the God of the universe through embodiment. It's no wonder then, it's no wonder then that Peter sees the road trip to Jerusalem that Jesus is planning as a disaster to be averted. It's not the goal. Let's retranslate that one section. What, what Matthew is really saying is Jesus, the long-awaited king of Israel, the living embodiment of the God of the universe, that Jesus, he must go to where all his haters are in Jerusalem. And he must suffer abuse like a criminal and, and eventually die. I'm, I'm sorry, I work in sales. That's one of the worst marketing schemes I've ever heard. Project Make Israel Great Again only happens when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with pretenders sitting on his throne. Except in this case, the God of the universe is on their side. And so Peter is probably thinking even bigger Let's just Thanos all y'all. Twice as Jesus is suffering on the cross, he's mocked and told to prove that he's not fake by coming down. 
See, this, this isn't how kings and certainly not how gods in our world or theirs display their power. So if Jesus is who he says he is, why does he so willingly choose to stay in that place of shame? The answer, once again, ironically, is on the lips of the mockers. He saved others, they say. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. Jesus' trust in God has led him to the cross, not for the sake of saving his own skin, but to save his people. Yes, even these mocking people. As Matthew writes earlier, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's no accident here then that the words from Jesus' lips, the only words from Jesus' lips in Matthew's crucifixion are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They're a direct quote from the righteous sufferer of Psalm 22. The psalmist goes on to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And then later, I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by my mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. The entire scene of Jesus' death plays out like a retelling of Psalm 22. Here then at the cross... As Jesus is suffering in silence, Matthew is bringing it all out into one, uh, into full view with one final resolute cry. Jesus will not come down from the cross because his suffering brings the deliverance that Israel has been longing for. This is how the world, in other words, like Barabbas, is rescued by looking on God crucified. Now, here's the deal. There's two, two ways, principally, to react at this stage. Worship or rejection. The suffering that Jesus endures as God's embodied for the sake of the whole world can elicit an awe and a gratitude, which would then lead you to praise, or his death leaves you feeling ashamed, uncomfortable, embarrassed, leading you to reject the very notion that rescue is even something that you need at all. Long ago, when, um, when I used to be an athlete, <clears throat> I'd spend most of my evenings in the summer playing uh, with other university basketball players in, in invite-only open gyms. Uh, after one particular hard-fought um, pickup game, I sat down next to my most recent competitor, naturally to congratulate him on losing the last series. Somehow or another, Ironically, probably due to my religious tattoos, our conversation turned to the subject of Jesus. After painting what I thought was a compelling and sincere picture of Jesus as, as my savior, my new friend, aptly named Zion, turned to me, lifted up his sh 
and revealed true a crown of thorns. And he said, Well, that's cool and all, but I don't need your Jesus. I got mine right here. <laughs> I wish in hindsight I would have responded, Well, your Jesus is whiter than I am. I don't think my experience is all that unique. In this postmodern, post-Christian world, we're far too practiced at claiming Jesus as our own without actually looking his way to see if he minds. I've had numerous conversations with people around the city who see purpose in Jesus as the way of love um, or of peace. But seeing purpose in the death of Jesus escapes them. Our world, after all, is on the up and up. We're steadily moving to up, up the arm of capitalism to utopia. No rescue needed. But the power of the gospel, according to Matthew, is in embracing the shame of the cross, of lingering in its shadow long enough to understand the liberation that it truly brings. But how? Matthew's last scene from the crucifixion helps us. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lemach shevaktani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, This man was the Son of God. And there were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, if the characters in Matthew's Gospels have have been important, his Gospel have been important at all, they've never been more so important than at the very end. The scene opens in darkness, at noon, That's abnormal, even in our case here in Vancouver. It's a setting, though, that we've seen before, when God is covering the land of Egypt at the first Passover, preparing for one last miracle to set his people go. And we're right to think that the same is happening here. When Frodo and Sam... When Frodo and Sam enter at long last into the heart of Mount Doom... Token describes the context this way. He, Sam, was come to the heart of the realm of Sauron, and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth, all the powers were subdued here. All the powers were subdued here. See, if we're not paying attention at this point in Matthew's narrative, we might think that Jesus' main opponents in this gospel are the Pharisees and Jewish leaders. From the second chapter, Jewish leadership represented by King Herod, 
has been out to kill him. But outside of some small slandering in chapter 9, the Pharisees aren't portrayed by Matthew as a threat to Jesus until chapter 12, where he writes, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. The true force that Jesus is seen in contention with all throughout this story is the power of evil. His very name, Jesus, which means God delivers, is given to him in chapter 1 because he, quote, will save his people from their sins. Notice Matthew does not say he will teach his people not to sin. Nor does he say Jesus will demonstrate how not to sin. He will certainly be seen to do these things. But Matthew says Jesus will save or deliver or rescue his people from their sins. I'm convinced that some of you need to stop thinking of Jesus as some type of heavenly headmaster, waiting to smack you back into form if you forget the right algorithm or step off the straight moral course. Judas makes the same mistake, calling Jesus rabbi, teacher, when all the other disciples use the title Lord. But sin in Matthew's world is spiritual slavery to powers of evil. It's a condition of being in bondage to the demonic. And, and that's why Jesus has, uh, Matthew has Jesus face the Satan right away as he begins his ministry in chapter 4. And then we see him immediately after casting out demons by the power of God's Spirit and healing the sick, attempting to show his people, and not very subtly, that their spiritual condition is gut-wrenchingly wicked and only getting worse. You'd think that towards the end of this story, after Jesus has been performing exorcisms like, like it's his day job, the world would start to show signs of renewal. But then, borrowing now from Luke, his gospel says this, Then Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve. And Judas went to discuss with the chief priests and temple officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were delighted. Even one of Jesus' 12 best friends can't help but become a willing accomplice with evil personified. Jesus, betrayed to the cross by the kiss of his friend. Yes, the powers of evil are at work behind the scenes are delighted. But little do they know, they betrayed him the power of the cross, to the place that token represents in, in uh, the, the return of the king where Sam and Frodo go, the very center of where evil moves. That's where Jesus goes, not to be subdued, but to subdue. Jesus cries out, with a loud voice and yields up his spirit and there's silence. He's died. It's over. And then Matthew, in almost an awkward grammatical stroke, says, behold. Behold, something surprising is happening. The curtain of the temple, it's torn in two from top to bottom. This is God's action, not man's. The earth shakes, rocks split. Some weird resurrection stuff happens. And then there's this beautiful line 
on the lips of a Gentile centurion, keeping watch over Jesus, seeing the earthquake, and how Jesus dies, he's filled with awe and says, truly, this was the Son of God. Friends, the invitation in Good Friday is to linger in the shadow of the cross. To linger in the shadow of the cross. To let the blood and the suffering and the cries of God himself crucified fill our ears and our eyes and our hearts that we with no other option respond in awe saying truly this was the son of God so would you linger would you linger maybe my favorite part of this entire story is in the last two verses and there were also many women also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And Matthew goes on to talk about how when it's evening, they come to help uh, bring Jesus' body down from the cross and bury him. And there's this amazing sense that even here, hours later after he's been dead, still the faithful response is to remain to wait, to linger, to come, and to heed the invitation of Matthew, of Jesus, and of Good Friday, and to get involved. This is Jesus, the King of the world. Thanks be to God.